0: The Projector starts, and so begins this episode of Movie Nights and Matinees, a podcast for people who enjoy movies from when we actually had to go to the movies. I'm your host, Bill Groves, and this is episode 22, The Projector Stops. Now, in case that makes any of you nervous, thinking that the title implies that this is the final episode and I'm throwing in the towel, don't worry, that's not the case. No, it merely refers to the subject matter of this episode, in which Jim Reed and I chat with our guest about the evolution of movie presentation into the digital era. So grab the popcorn, make sure the lid on your drink is securely fastened, and enjoy.
1: Theaters, especially in the major city markets, would present a live show, generally a musical, before the feature. So instead of, you know, a double feature, you get a live show and a movie. It would be the orchestra and the organ. You would even have an organ solo. You would have a short
0: subject, uh, maybe a travel log, illustrated songs. Going to the
1: movies was an event. It wasn't just a pass, you know, two hours or a cheap date. When you went to the movies, you went to be entertained, and that's what they did.
0: Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. To those of you who listen to the podcast regularly, you've become familiar with the opening and closing sound effects of a motion picture projector. Apart from any of you who may have been professional projectionists, our familiarity with that sound likely comes from home movies or classrooms where 16-millimeter films would be shown in school. With the advent of home video formats, it's probably not a stretch to say that most young people these days have never even heard the sound of a film projector. The business of exhibiting motion pictures to the public has likewise undergone a transformation, and today's guest is a gentleman who has crafted a fascinating, if somewhat melancholy, documentary about that evolution titled The Dying of the Light. Joining me and Jim is filmmaker Peter Flynn. Peter, welcome to Movie Nights and Matinees.
2: Thank you very much, Bill. Happy
0: to be here. Well, first off, I should probably mention that Peter's appearance today. Can I say appearance? Uh, I mean, this is audio only, so he's not going to be appearing where people can see him. So, well, never mind. Not important. Any English teachers listening can feel free to set me straight later. Anyhow, Peter's air quotes appearance today is thanks to Jim, as it was he who told me about Peter and dying of the light, suggesting him as a potential candidate to be a guest. So thank you for that, Jim. Also, I know you actually participated in another of Peter's films, which we'll be discussing shortly. So a little tease for that. So Peter, tell us a bit about your background as a filmmaker and your road to this subject matter.
2: Well, you know, Bill, I went to school to study film history. I was meant to be your typical academic writing books on film history. And somewhere along the line, I fell in love with making films and picked that up as as an alternative to writing about films. I decided to make films about films. And for the last 15 years or so, that's what I've been doing. And it's a ni- it dovetails nicely with my day job, which is teaching film history and, and filmmaking uh, here in Boston at Emerson College.
0: I thought I noticed a dialect there. I didn't realize it was Boston. Boston by way of
2: Dublin. (laughs) So that was the, the impetus to make films was I didn't want to write about films. And I've always had a deep interest in film history, particularly the early era in film history. And then, of course, teaching film history, you realize that there's so much that's not in the textbooks, that's not being taught in film schools. And those were the areas that I was drawn to. Initially, that whole history of film exhibition from the perspective of the projection booth, which is a, a lovely place and a place that not too many people are acquainted with. And now more recently, film history from the eyes of those who spent their lives saving it, and preserving it and holding on to it, holding on to the physical artifacts of film, the film reels and the, the celluloid itself. That was evolution for me and, and a, just a nice dovetailing of my day job. And then my passion work.
0: Although your first cinematic documentary was a little closer to home for you. That was called Blazing the Trail. So why don't you tell us about that?
2: That's correct. And and that started out as a book. That started out as my PhD dissertation topic. I was all set to write a book on the early images of Ireland and the Irish and American cinema. And of course, in in researching that topic, I came across a fascinating and rarely known chapter in early American history that focuses on the Calum Film Company, a New York based company who in the 1910s made a fairly unprecedented decision to shoot in Ireland and return to Ireland Uh, beginning in 1910, returned to Ireland for several years thereafter, making films designed to cater to, appeal to the the immigrant audience in America. What was interesting about those filmmakers was that while everybody was heading west to California, these guys were going an almost equal distance in the exact opposite direction. And they they kind of, you know, they they gambled on this move to Ireland and, and of immigrant audiences and that ultimately really didn't pay off. The industry went in another direction. It went to Hollywood, it went to California, it went to the big studio system that we have today. And so those early filmmakers and, and those early efforts were forgotten. And that's really what appealed to me. So it was a wonderful opportunity to tell the story. This wonderful, romantic story of filmmakers, uh, Sidney Alcott and Gene Gontier of the Calum Film Company, who quite literally went in the opposite direction of everybody else and, and made some lovely films in the process, and have since, for the most part, been forgotten. And within that, in making that film, I also had the opportunity to return to Ireland and photograph in the locations that they had visited between 1910 and 1915. And that was fascinating. And that that was when the, the film really came alive for me as a filmmaker, was to, in a sense, tell a historical story in the present tense. You know, that we could go to Ireland in the present day in 2011 and a hundred years almost to the day that these filmmakers were there and see the same hills and the same buildings and the same sky and somehow capture some of that, the present tense of that historical story.
0: Now, was there any segue from that into Dying of the Light? I mean, did or was that just a separate idea you had? Did, did...
2: Um, The segue was this idea of film history in the present tense. In making a documentary like Blazing the Trail, where you're documenting activities that had occurred 100 years prior, you're arriving on the scene after the murder has been committed, after the body has been removed from the scene. And all that remains is the chalk outline. It's that dreaded feeling of I arrived on the scene too late to document anything of of any significance. And in, in shooting in contemporary Ireland and doing some shooting in contemporary New York, too, and kind of making certain connections between the past and the present, that got me into this idea that wouldn't it be wonderful to tell a historical documentary without any resource to archival footage? And I'd always been interested in film collectors, and I approached that idea. And initially, at least, film collectors weren't very open to me. I was an outsider. They didn't know me. There was still a tremendous sense of caution and paranoia, even, over what had happened to film collectors in the past, which we'll probably get to in in due time. You Um, didn't know
0: the secret handshake?
2: I didn't know the secret handshake, no, or the password. So it segued into a documentary about film projectionists. And there was this wonderful story to be told of the history of film handling and film presentation. The width of the film is known as its gauge and is always measured in millimeters. Now, there were many different widths, but the three common ones still in use today are 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter, and 70 millimeter. And obviously, the larger film is going to give you a better image. From the very beginning of motion picture photography to now, 35 has been the standard. And more movies have been shot in this particular gauge than any other gauge in history. And what was so wonderful about that world and that space of the booth was you could work in the present tense and you could tell 100 years of film history. Because at that time that I made that film in 2013, 14 and 15, it was still possible and today still is, but to a significantly less degree. It was still possible to walk into a booth and see 100 years of history in that booth.
1: You know, there, there is that lineage that goes all the way back to Edison and Biograph and even the Lumiere brothers that still exists in 35 millimeter film projection.
2: The base of the projector went back to the silent days. The lamp house went back to the 1950s. The rewind bench had been installed in the 40s. And in the midst of all this modern technology was the Dolby surround sound and the new DTS digital sound systems, all of which had kind of been built on top of each other as the decades went by. And then, of course, you had projectionists themselves who had been trained by projectionists, who had been trained by projectionists, who had projected film at the very dawn of film history.
1: I would be very proud to say that my DNA goes back to that. I mean... I started training as a projectionist in 1960. I was being trained by people who started their career in 1910. So if you take my 50 years or 52 or three years and add to their 50 years, my knowledge has been translated over 100
2: years and not by reading books. So there was this direct and immediate connection to the past. And so I was able to tell this story and represent all phases of film history from the perspective of the booth in, as I said, the present tense, which was a real treat. Very exciting. And I got in there at the right time. It was the last possible time you could really do that. Uh, mm-hmm. And in the years since I've made that film, and not too many years, seven, eight years, many of the people featured in the film have died and passed on, and many of the booths have been irreparably changed, have been altered and modernized. Some of the venues have been torn down. So I really got in there at that last moment when I think you could really represent that full history.
0: Yeah, I guess I maybe should have rolled this out sooner, but the underlying uh, circumstances that we're talking about here is the fact that theaters have gone digital now. And that's correct. No longer actually using physical film. Now, I, I didn't realize that the change had been so universal. I had, you know, you'd see ads for uh, theater advertising the fact, you know, digital projection, things like that. Mm-hmm. And okay, well, they've mm-hmm. got a special screen, like like they might have a screen that is equipped with some of that technology that makes your chair vibrate and stuff like that. But yeah. it didn't hit me that the transformation had been so complete. So that was uh, a little bit of a an eye-opener for me. Now, I hate to get too technical on this, but in order to really paint the picture, of what that transition means, I think maybe we should talk a little bit about the actual mechanics of film projection. Now I took filmmaking and so forth. So I can talk about persistence of vision and, Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. But do do you want to, do you want to get into that yourself or do you want me to lay it out?
2: I would be happy to either way, whichever you feel most comfortable with.
0: All right. Well, I'm happy to uh, have you continue to be our guide on this journey.
2: Okay. Well, the work that was done in the booth up until certainly up through the 1950s and to a degree into the 1960s and 70s was a relatively high paying, highly specialized craft. It was something that you had to apprentice at, that you had to spend a considerable amount of time developing these highly specialized skills. So you were a highly trained, Highly valuable employee of that theater. It was not uncommon in a theater in the 1950s or even in the 60s for the projectionist to be the highest paying employee of that theater, working in that theater at that given moment in time. The job entailed, of course, handling this precious commodity of film, uh, two miles of 35 millimeter celluloid that might have to run in your theater for several months, not two or three weekends, but several months that would need to have a a lifespan of and a continuous lifespan of being screened in theaters of upwards and in excess of a year. So you needed to be very well trained in handling this film. Then there was, of course, the the practice of threading this through a fairly complicated piece of machinery and uh, focusing it on, on a screen all in conjunction with a certain degree of showmanship, the opening and closing of curtains, the fading up and fading down of lights. Usually uh, about 30, 40 seconds before the very end of the film, you'd hit the button and the curtains would
1: close again just as the end of the film came up. You did not want the audience to see white
2: screen. It was creating the illusion that you were seeing a show. And up until the early 1950s, this... Film stock was highly flammable. It was made of a nitrate base and thus required even more specialized and and careful handling because it was extremely dangerous. You couple that with the fact that the light source in the projector up until the 1950s was an open flame and you combine a flame with a highly flammable piece of flexible plastic and, and you have the recipe for disaster. So again, that projectionist was somebody who you needed to rely on and you could depend on. So it was, as I said, a very well-regarded and esteemed craft. And then beginning in the 1960s, that process became increasingly more automated. Instead of uh, carbon arc illumination, which required constant adjusting and handling and swapping out burned carbons for replaced uh, carbons, you now had a, a bulb that could run many hundreds of hours without any maintenance whatsoever. Um, That meant that the projector, the the lamp house, needed less care and maintenance and attention. The film reels got longer. They went from 1,000 feet in the 20s to 2,000 feet. And then once you had a, a bulb in place, that reel of film could be as long as you want. And that introduced the platter system, where you had a whole feature film on a large platter system, running through a projector. You didn't have these manual reel-to-reel changeovers. And that platter system could be almost entirely automated. So now what was a highly specialized skill set now became a button pressing operation. So that that
1: meant that uh, you could just do it with one projector.
2: And you could do it with one projector. You didn't need to do the changeovers. And of course, that made possible or made more possible the advent of multi-screen theatres. Now you could automate several screens. If you can automate one, you can automate two or three or four. And so the whole system got bigger and more automated and the projections became less important in that equation to the point when film ultimately began to go away and be replaced by digital in the 2010s. Film projection was essentially a a, a skillless task that a manager, a theater manager could operate pop the popcorn, sell the tickets and run upstairs and hit a button and start the movie and then go back down and sell more popcorn and leave the film to run.
0: Yeah. I experienced that. I was managing a theater. This would have been the uh, early eighties and the regional chain that I worked for decided that they would fire the projectionist union. Yeah. So I instantly became a manager projectionist. Now, thankfully it, happened at a time when some of those changes had come into place. For instance, there was no longer the changing from one projector to the other. And and that's one of the skills that I always respected a lot was being able yeah. to do that effectively and at the right moment. And so it was, it was one of the platter systems where right. you know, the, all the reels would come in and then you'd have to splice them together and feed them onto the platter. You have them all yeah. on there, then you run it. And as you say, pretty much Automated, hit the button, and it's off and running. And then at the end of a film's run, then you have to break it back down onto those reels and get shipped back. But yeah, so I I saw some of that firsthand.
2: Right. It was a lot of shipping and handling involved in the job and less less, um, that creative act of showmanship. And that was the real eye-opener for me, Bill, was was the realization that the shift to digital, which occurred in, in the early 2010s, and it kind of completed by, say, 2015 or so, that shift was part of a much longer process of de-skilling the labor force uh, and of automating the labor force, that that went back really to the introduction of the bulb, the tungsten filament bulb that would replace the carbons.
0: Right. That was the other thing, was that they had gone to the xenon bulbs by that time. So I never had to change a carbon rod or deal with any of that stuff.
2: Right, right. So from the Introduction of the xenon bulb to digital was one long continuous process of increasing automation and you know kind of a dumbing down of the labor force and the de-skilling of the labor force and you Bill came in near the end of that.
0: Uh, well, one thing's for sure: the projection booth these days has to be a lot quieter than in the old days. <laughs> um, this big digital projector moved right into where I used to hang out it was our little nook and you'd sit and read while the film was just purring away. So at first I felt a little intimidated by it. It felt imposed. It felt like, well, what is this new stuff and why does it have to push us out as operators and push film out as a medium?
1: One of the reasons that I think the digital happened so fast was the studios decided that they didn't want to have to make prints anymore. So they actually gave like financial support to a lot of theaters to uh, switch over to digital.
2: Absolutely. There was a lot of incentives. But the biggest incentive was convert or die, that you weren't simply not going to be able to survive past a certain date. And that date being the date the studios decided no longer to print any films. So, yes, a lot of theaters and particularly the big theaters benefited to a small degree with certain subsidies and, and loans. To cover the costs of purchasing and installing these new digital projection systems, very much a, a one-sided benefit. The benefit went to the studios.
1: Yeah, one of one of the theaters here, the Texas Theater, uh, had a Kickstarter to get their projector.
2: Right, a lot yeah. had to do that. A lot had to yeah. go to the public to fund that, and the alternative was that they go under. Yeah. Well, it seems
0: kind of interesting to me, too, that this was a circumstance where the theatrical exhibition uh, the studios and and so forth kind of turned the chronology on its head because instead of, well, in terms of home movies, I mean, you had professional movies and then the home movie market developed Mm -hmm. uh, on the heels of that. Now, in this case, it seems like all the digital stuff was happening in the home video market, before right. it then was adopted by the studios and the theaters.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the, the shift to digital music happened much quicker, much sooner. The the shift to digital pictures and movie theaters took so long because it was difficult to match the quality and the resolution, the sharpness of a 35 millimeter piece of film and impossible to match that of 70 millimeter. And when the replacement happened in the 2010s, they were replacing a superior system with an inferior one. That the quality went downhill. The visual experience went downhill. The quality of the image was degraded with the introduction of digital. I say that to my students today, that they can go see a 35 or 70 millimeter print at one of several theaters in the Boston area and see higher resolution images than they would at the multiplex next door.
0: Are film negatives and prints still being archived, even though the primary business has gone digital? I mean, just in terms of being, well, I guess it wouldn't be new production because the new
2: productions, I guess, are being filmed. The the new productions are, for the most part, being being done digitally with a few exceptions. Yeah, see, I just
0: started to use that term and then it hit me, that's an oxymoron. Yeah, filmed digitally Uh, (laughs) as soon as it came out of my mouth. But okay, they're being shot digitally. Yes. So I guess I'd be mostly thinking of in terms of the existing library. Are they uh, I know they've digitized everything, right? But are they also are they continuing to devote resources to archiving?
2: You know, but the fact of the matter is that they haven't digitized everything. When you think of all the shifts that have been made from film to video. From video, from VHS to DVD, from DVD to Blu ray, Blu ray to streaming or 4K.
0: And laser disc in there, don't forget. And laser
2: discs in there, of course, too. Yeah. <laughs> An ocean of titles get forgotten, don't get transferred over. So there's so much stuff, and and particularly in the non-commercial realms of home movies and uh, educational films and so on, stuff shot and released on 16 millimeter that never made the leap to VHS, that certainly never made the leap to digitization, where there is no real economic model in place to make it worthwhile digitizing this stuff. So there's a lot of stuff that exists only purely on film that has never been digitized yet. I think that's gone a little off topic from your question because if I interpret it correctly, your question was, does film still have a role to play in archiving and storing motion picture images and sounds? And and I think the answer is yes, because the film will always be the ultimate record of what was shot on the day and of what was released back in the day. So We scanned it once for a VHS release. We scanned it again for DVD release. And then we realized with Blu-rays that we needed to scan it again at a higher resolution. And of course, there's issues of digital corruption. And so you have the print and you can always go back to that print and scan it again with newer and more improved technology. Now, that said, the prevailing sense is that when scanning at 4 or 6K, we are scanning every piece of information off a 35 millimeter print. So once you make that four, six K scan, that's it. You have all the details. But what happens if the drive gets corrupted and the backup gets corrupted? And one of the benefits to film was that it was not inexpensive to store, but you could store it in a temperature control vault and be reasonably certain that it would be there 30, 40, 50 years from now. Can we say that with digital Hard drives. We don't have that track record yet with hard drives. I think it also storing.
1: depends on which studio we're talking about, because some are better than others. And yeah, some are better than others, so, yeah. of course. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. film is, you know, some of them, even with digital productions, will take them to film at the end. Right. For archiving
2: purposes. Right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So yeah. there in in that sense, you're creating a filmed record of something that was largely digitally altered. Right. Right. At certain irony. And sometimes
1: even digital restorations of older films, It's what you worry about is that they don't go to film at the end.
2: Right, right, right. I also think that digital technology has grown in leaps and bounds and that this current prevailing concern over the longevity of a hard drive and so on and worries of file corruption and all of this, I think that's increasingly becoming an outmoded concern. I think digital technology is at a point where yes, if we want to save our 6k scan of King Kong, we will. It will be stored. It won't be lost.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering with the issues of supply and demand if uh, with this transition, I'm assuming there are fewer lab facilities available for archival purposes of creating new prints or re- doing restoration things like that, and I'm I'm wondering Uh, How much more difficult it might be at this point to.
2: Yeah. uh, And I, you know, I, I wish I could give you an informed answer on that. But my concerns, rightly or wrongly, have always been with the private individual, the people working outside of the system, on the outskirts of the system, sometimes in spite of the system and against the system. So I haven't spent a lot of time dealing with archives and the bigger institutions. And part of my reasoning is they don't need me. They don't need me to tell their story. They're perfectly capable of telling it themselves. I've always focused on the individual collectors, the individual restorationists, the people whose stories are not being told. Projectionists, being the prime example.
1: It's kind of a lonely uh, job at times, but you know I do have many characters <laughs> to keep me company here. And I do love it. You know, it's it's it it can be at times boring, but other times it's the most exciting job in the world. And really, you know, I've gotten better paid for other jobs
2: that I hate it. But this job, I love, you know, that last generation of career projectionists have for the most part faded from this planet without their story fully being told, without that history fully being documented and recorded. I did what I could in my film, but so much of that history is is now lost because it was never documented and it existed as an oral culture, as it were. And the same can be said for private film collectors and those who are now privately restoring and releasing on Blu-ray or on streaming films that the studios and the archives for a variety of reasons are not interested in doing themselves.
0: (laughs) You, you offered up a a good segue there into talking about your most recent film, which is called film is dead, long live film. And I've seen the trailer on it. I have of course not had the opportunity to uh, see the full film yet, but I'm looking forward to it. And as I understand you and Jim worked together for a portion of that. And how did that that's, come about?
2: That's true. We did. It was in the very early stages of making the film. And Jim had reached out to me. And I don't know, Jim, maybe you want to you dip in on this.
0: So you guys already knew each other then?
2: We met as a consequence of this.
1: Yeah. Ray Faola, who's a big collector up in New York, posted on one of the groups about what Peter was doing. And so uh, we sent him a, an email telling him what we were doing down here and inviting him to come down to Texas. And he probably thought we were a cult or something. I don't know. But.
2: <laughs> no, it was a lovely experience. And Jim and I have been friends ever since. And it was a very, um, very eventful a few days, Jim very kindly hosted me and put me up. And uh, if you've been to Jim's apartment, you'll know what a treasure trove for any cinephile that apartment is. So to be able oh, yes. that home is house is. So to to be able to just go through the books and of course the DVDs and the Blu-rays and then the films themselves, it was uh, it was like a vacation. It's it's my ideal vacation actually is to go to Texas and visit Jim and just uh, read books and watch films. So that was a real pleasure. But Jim introduced me to underworld is not the correct term. Underground is not quite the correct term, but it's certainly its own culture, even subculture of film collecting. That was really my first introduction. And of course, if you're a cinephile in the Texas area, you know, Jim, Um, it's like everybody goes to Rick's Cafe. Well, likewise, everybody goes to Jim Reed's film screenings. So Jim has his tentacles. Into all sorts of nooks and crannies of film collecting. And so I named names. He named names, yes, (laughs) and pulled people out from under rocks and out into this broad sunlight where they squirmed and met me. But it was a wonderful opportunity to really get a sense of how much of film history is not being officially recorded and documented and how much of it lies in the hands of people like Jim.
0: I have a question here that I would have asked specifically regarding Dying of the Light, but it can apply to either film. And that is, uh, what was the most unexpected thing you learned while working on these films? One or the other. You could have two examples, one for each, if if you
2: like. I'll tell you the thing that moved me the most about uh, making Dying of the Light, and I don't think there's any analog in any other profession that I can think of, and that is that you walk into a projection booth A long standing booth, a booth that goes back. And you will notice, and I noticed this on many, many occasions, that there is a small framed photograph somewhere on the wall in the booth of the previous projectionist. Not as an employee of the month, you know, not like that, but that somebody had spent enough time with this individual that they felt they needed to remember him or her, but given the, you know, just given the the gender dynamic of that industry, it was more often than not a man, that somebody thought enough about that person because they had passed down their knowledge to the current projectionist that they felt the need to honor and remember that person in such a deep, meaningful way. And what was interesting about the booth, and for me, very, very moving about the booth is that it is unlike most workspaces maybe less so now in a post-pandemic world, but it was unlike most workspaces, projectionists would very much personalize their surroundings with uh, movie posters and movie stills. And these framed pictures of the people who had taught them their, their livelihood, that there was something very intimate and personal about those spaces. They used to joke that they were spaces of arrested development, but I wasn't referring necessarily to the occupant. I was referring to the space itself and how it held on to Previous moments in time, previous projectionists, previous moments in film history, and technological history. And then these movie stills that went back 10, 20, 30 years back to the early silent era of cinema. And that I thought that was something very lovely, that in a world where everybody by necessity looks ahead to the future, there was this occupation that was populated for the most part by people who lingered on in the past and held on to the past. Um, So that was, in relation to Dying of the Light, that was the thing that moved me the most. With this new film, we're essentially dealing with the same type of people, people who want to hold on to certain aspects of our past and fear it being lost and are aware of the fact that the broader public, the broader world, has no use or need of this. But still, nonetheless, like Don Quixote, tilting at the windmills, they struggle to hold on to this stuff. So it was essentially the same type of people. And with this, what struck me the most was that, of course, it makes sense when you look at it big picture wise, but that the most collectors, most of the real collectors are of the baby boom generation. And it makes sense. They were that generation at the right time, at the perfect eye of this storm. In their childhood years, they're surrounded by film. Film in the school, as you mentioned, sixteen mill projectors at school, eight millimeter in the home, and every movie theater running thirty-five and then seventy. And that's the only generation to have film completely surround and circulate their lives. If it was a generation earlier, there was no home movies. There were no eight millimeter castles. A generation later my generation, and VHS has kind of taken the the spotlight. So that baby boom generation is where I think the real quintessential film collector resides. And of course, they're getting older and there is this anxiety, concern over what do I do with my collection? Where does it go? And it isn't just a collection, like a collection of books or DVDs. It's something that was physically maintained through effort over many years, many decades, a life's work into which is consumed the personality and the hopes of that collector. And so there's, I found a great sense of urgency amongst a lot of collectors, and Jim can speak to this too, I'm sure, of where does this go? This is a value. And where does it go? And who will appreciate it to the degree that I did? that race against time ticking clock.
0: Well, and also, and I think this was mentioned in dying of the light talk of what's called vinegar syndrome,
2: right? In in terms
0: of just maintaining the, the collection in the film. So uh, can you uh, give us a quick definition? What is vinegar syndrome?
2: Vinegar syndrome is the inevitable chemical decay of safety film as it decays, if it's improperly stored in uh, warm, hot or humid conditions, the the chemicals begin to degrade. They give off a acidic acid um, uh, that smells of vinegar. So the telltale sign of a decaying print is the smell of vinegar and the fact that these things are not meant to last. And so any effort to hold on to them is a kind of an act of blasphemy against nature.
1: It's my opinion that, that all acetate film is going to go at some point. It's just, you know, if you store it better, it'll you'll prolong its life. But,
2: so then the question I would have for you, Jim, is how long will it last? And so your collection, how long will that survive?
1: Well, I'm already seeing prints that, that I watched a few years ago, and I'll take them out of the box now and get hit yeah. with that vinegar smell. Mm. I had a movie night last week where I ran the Preston Sturgis Palm Beach story. And uh, when I took it out of the box, the second reel was already smoking, and they both reels smelled pretty bad. Luckily, it still ran through the projector. But when the movie night was over, I, I ended up trashing that print.
2: Is yeah. there
0: a difference between color stock versus black and white in terms of susceptibility to that? One going before the other, noticed anything? I've actually
1: heard that Technicolor stock is a little more susceptible. I'm not sure if that's correct. But uh, I've been told that by several people.
2: What's interesting, and Jim's answer there illustrates this, is that nobody really knows for certain, you know, whether you're working in a world-class archive or whether you're just a private film collector, nobody knows. And so everybody has, or various people have various theories about how to prolong the life of film. And they're as valid as anybody else's. I don't think anybody really knows. But the certainty is that this stuff is not meant to last and that it will, if not in Jim's lifetime, and whoever picks the film up after Jim, it will go away in their lifetime. So film collecting as a pursuit is finite. It will end because there will be no more films to collect after a certain point. Uh, That's sad. And I've seen too
1: many cases of see a garage sale somewhere and you go in and they've got this film collection laid out in the front yard for a dollar a reel or something like that. and You don't want that to happen, you know, but most people, your family doesn't know anything about this film.
2: Yeah. And I know this is not the case with Jim, but as has been told to me in many different ways by many collectors and, and even some archivists that in a lot of cases, film is what kept the collector from his or her family. And so when the collector dies the family have nothing but ill will and resentment toward this film and they just want to get rid of it and they'll throw it out into the garbage because it's what kept them from dad you know so there's in a lot of cases i think there's so much animosity built up around this object that families don't want to see it survive
0: on a happier note um (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you speak of the resentment of families towards collectors for that reason, but I think of how originally the studios could not have been thrilled with collectors snatching up prints of films that they created and certainly technically owned and so forth. And yet there are stories of films that would have been completely lost if not for prints held by private collectors. In your latest film, did you encounter uh, anyone who uh, fits that description?
2: I met many film collectors who uh, were targeted by the FBI in the 1970s and 1980s for buying and selling or or just simply storing prints that they did not legally own, that were owned by Disney or Universal or MGM.
0: Oh, you're not suggesting Disney is litigious.
2: (laughs) Well, Disney was the, the studio that most collectors feared and hated. You know, the fascinating thing is that for the most part, these studios were bad parents to their products. They did not treat them well. They did not think of their future. And so it fell through various means into the hands of private individuals who became the surrogate parents who took care of these films. And then there comes that moment of reckoning where the studio says, that's mine. And the collector says, well, I took care of it all these years. You forfeited any right to this by virtue of abandoning it, leaving it to rot. But of course, the law won't side with that logic. So there was a very contentious, difficult period in the 70s and 80s when film collectors were being persecuted. Now, in a lot of cases, and in most cases, I should say, they were being persecuted for profiting off of this. And in most cases, it was a case of pirating acquiring a print while it was running in a movie theater, of making videotape copies of it, and then selling those tapes on black market, whether it be The Godfather or The Exorcist, you know, that that era in early VHS. And so collectors got fined and and a small number went to jail. So there was a tremendous fear amongst collectors of being caught, of being found out, of having the contents of the collection exposed and brought to light. So it did function for quite a while underground. Now this was less the case with 16 millimeter collectors and more the case with 35 millimeter collectors. Since most 16 millimeter prints, not all of course, were made available legally through commercial markets. It was mostly 35 millimeter collectors who came under that level of scrutiny. And now, of course, we've come full circle because the studios have realized initially with the popularity of VHS and, well, really DVD, I I think, because DVD had that whole extras feature, deleted scenes, a trailer, uh, all of this additional material could be included on a DVD. And where was this additional material? Where were the trailers? Where were I? And oftentimes they were in private hands. So Studios began to warm up to collectors and vice versa, too. And now we've gone a step further where the technology is such that a private collector can scan their own films in their own home, make whatever digital corrections are necessary and release those films on DVD and Blu-ray themselves, which is what's been happening in the last five, 10 years. So. Yeah, the, the industry has changed and that hostility that existed between collectors and studios is now mostly a thing of the past. But grudges are often held and held long times and there's still some bad will. And I'm sure Jim knows of many instances of that. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the other issue that maybe Jim can talk to about 16 millimeter television prints that hit the market and or began circulating that would have been acquired through not-so-legal means, right, Jim?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's stuff that went out the back door at a lot of TV stations. But something happened in the early 80s that I think made that situation a little better, which was that there was a big warehouse, Bonded TV, that handled quite a few of the studios, their distribution, and TV stations had stopped running 16-millimeter film at that point. So they suddenly found themselves at this huge warehouse full of all these 16 millimeter prints and the studios didn't want them back. So they ended up selling them off to collectors. And so now the collectors had the, they purchased it. So it's theirs to do with what they want, as long as they don't violate the copyright.
0: I'm just wondering if, because I think I alluded to this earlier, are there any titles that spring to mind that do still exist only because prints were grabbed by collectors somewhere in their history, uh, but that the studios had lost either through vault fires or just poor Um, maintenance. So uh,
2: I, you know, I know a collector who's featured in the film by the name of Lou De Crescenzo, Lou, who was based in New Jersey, Philadelphia, New Jersey area, Southern Jersey, Northern Philadelphia. And Lou is now in his 70s, but had been collecting since he was in his teens. And he was collecting at a point when nitrate prints, nitrate one reelers, were not too difficult to acquire, when it was not too difficult to get into a theater that had been around three, four decades and find this type of material in the booths. Lou himself was a projectionist and later a theater engineer. So he had access to a lot of theaters and he had access to places where films would have accidentally been stored and, you know, lingered over the decades. So since the late 60s, Lou's been donating titles to the Library of Congress. Initially, the American Film Institute, and then their collection got folded into the Library of Congress. So for the past five decades, he's been regularly donating 35mm prints to the Library of Congress. And amongst those titles are Greta Garbo silent film, Wild Orchids, uh, a John Ford silent film, Three Bad Men, came from Lou, and it might be the only print. Hmm. The Jim, you'll know this, the The Frank Sinatra short, the musical short from the late 40s. Not The House I Live In. The House I Live In, exactly. Yeah, okay. Yes, that survives. The only print of that came from Lou DiCrescenzo. And Lou's just a regular guy. You know, just a projectionist. And it wasn't just films he was saving and preserving. It was projectors. It was all kinds of cine machinery. And five decades of that has accumulated quite a variety of material that would not have survived otherwise. And then there's another thing. Collectors often save not the only print of a film, but let's say a print that may not be unique. The negatives may survive. But they have a copy of a film that can actually be shown again. So the Library of Congress has copies of many Disney films that Lou donated. And there are original Technicolor Disney films that the Library of Congress can show and that people can experience because they were donated by Lou and other collectors too. So it isn't just saving unique films, lost films one-of-a-kind films, it's saving films that could actually be screened again to an audience so that they could see what an original 1950s or 1960s Technicolor Disney film, or whatever for that matter, looked like.
0: One thing that also occurred to me to ask is if there would be any sort of, if you see any potential for any sort of nostalgic return to film within a sufficient number of people or groups or, or whatever that film could make at least a partial comeback. I just, the analogy I think of is uh, you went through all the different formats of uh, you know home movies and, and video and that sort of thing. And I I think of vinyl making a comeback with audio right. files. So I just wonder if there's any potential for that. Does that sound remotely possible?
2: The thing for me, the thing about vinyl, what makes vinyl so easy is that You can buy a player for $50, maybe less. And you can go on Amazon and you can buy a nice mid-range player that's going to sound great. And you can go to just about any thrift store and find any number of records that would have been in any standard home in America in the 1970s and 80s. So Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, for $2 or less. It's a very easy thing to get into, vinyl, and fairly low cost. whereas What are the hurdles you'd have to get over to get into film, Jim? You need a projector that works. You need to find this fairly scarce commodity. I don't think it's as user-friendly or as easy to enter into. Well, it's it's never going to be a
1: huge comeback, but there's been a slight comeback in in prints just lately because several directors have clout and they... You know, say, I want to do this on film. I know of several theaters in the area that are running film prints of newer films.
2: Yeah, and, and that certainly, you know, Tarantino uh, spearheaded that to a large right. degree and is responsible for that to a large degree. And now there's a certain marquee value to saying in 35 millimeter or in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. And people will pay a surplus for that experience. And most of them probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and a digital print, but they'll go anyway, and that's terrific. I don't mean to belittle that at all, but it's really a drop in the in the ocean, isn't it? I don't. It doesn't reverse the the tide. Well, so, I think
1: that's why the transition to digital was so almost seamless. Was because ninety eight percent of your audience wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Be able to
2: tell the difference, yeah, yeah. And you know, the other thing that was kind of surprising to me was that. The art and the craft of projecting film had been so debased by the 1990s and early 2000s, you know, because it's been run by the by the person selling the candy is now running up and not monitoring it. That the quality of film projection was so bad that it was easy to sell people on a new, improved digital yeah. presentation.
0: Yeah. So, tell us now, where can our listeners find your your documentaries.
2: Well, I I make spectacularly uncommercial documentaries that are even for those small few people who want to see them are exceedingly difficult to see. <laughs> it's a knack I seem to have. Dying of the light is available on DVD, and you can purchase it on Amazon. It was um, handled for a number of years by First Run Features when they released it on DVD in 2016 and so it's still it's still out there and available this new film is still new it's in fact i'm i'm still tweaking the sound so that hasn't been issued and and i don't know i can't speak with great degree of certainty on how and where people will be able to see that But I will, of course, make announcements when I have something concrete. But that's we're still in the very early stages of that. And the first film I made, Blazing the Trail, I was very proud of what we put out on that. It was a DVD collection of all the surviving Silent Calum films in conjunction with the film. That went out of print a few years ago, but it can still be found on eBay. Uh, And that's a very nice package. It's uh, lovely films. So yes, you can get Dying of the Light and you can find Blazing the Trail and the new one to be announced.
0: <laughs> okay. Do you have your sights on uh, your next project that you can uh, tease us with? or uh, I, My deciding? next project
2: is, is Rest and Relaxation. <laughs> um, but you know, I love this world so much and I love the people in it that it's very hard to extricate yourself from it. And you never feel like you've told all the story and... So I don't know. I don't know. I'm not interested in very many things in life. I'm not interested in sports. I'm not interested in politics. I'm interested in film.
1: I've tried Uh, to get
2: interested in baseball, but didn't work. (laughs) uh, Yeah. On on that topic, Jim and I part company. So I I don't know. I don't don't know yet.
0: All right. Well, it'll be something to to fill us in on when you uh, settle on something. Absolutely. So now I come to the, the question that I ask all my guests, and that is, what is your most memorable movie-going experience?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, there are many. Do I, must I give you one? A number yes. of
0: people have, have doubled up, but uh, i say maybe the top two that you can uh, come up with.
2: You know, the, I think the, 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 the truest answer is the most cliché and least interesting.
0: You're not going to say uh, Napoleon again, are you? Because that seems uh, to be the trend. Oh,
2: no, I'm not going to say Napoleon. Okay. No, I I was born in 72. So, you know, the first really meaningful cinematic experience to me after, say, Snow White and uh, Dumbo was Star Wars. To see Star Wars. I saw it with my father. So it was Star Wars that just kind of blew me away and then de- and then defined the next 10 years of my life, you know. So that early childhood experience, seeing it in one of the only single screen theaters in Dublin in 1977, 78, it would have been seventy eight. Uh, with I'm sure the Dolby stereo track was just amazing. But again, that's kind of a cliched and not terribly interesting answer, Bill. After that, well, I'm going for
0: authenticity s- here. So
2: okay, very and good. Plus, it it
1: I think it changed movie
2: going. I mean. Yes. You know, yeah.
1: You know, Jaws probably started it, but,
2: but. And I was just too young for Jaws. So, it was, yeah, it was but
1: Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, my first trip to California was in November of 77. And while I was over taking pictures of the footprints at Grauman's Chinese, I realized that they were still running Star Wars, you know, five, four months after it started. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, you know, what's the chance, when am I going to have the chance to go see Star Wars at Grauman's Chinese? So I went up and bought a ticket and went in. It was like Wednesday afternoon, and I was the only person in the theater, so I had like a private screening in Grauman's oh. Chinese, and it was 70 millimeter too.
2: Yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, you were conscious enough that it was 70 millimeters and you could appreciate oh, the yeah, realm And yeah. yeah. You could appreciate the history of, of that yeah. theater. And yeah. Unfortunately,
1: that's... I had already seen it like four times at that point, but you know, yeah. still it was, it was, it was great.
2: Yeah. I bet. I bet. And then after that, it was, you know, the thing about the interesting thing about seeing films in Ireland, I don't know how uh, interesting or relevant this is, was that there were no indoor theaters. There were no. Malls. There were no. Um, uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that when you stood out line outside to see a film, you stood outside in the pouring rain, and you'd start queuing for the two o'clock, but you wouldn't get into the two o'clock show. You'd be there for another two hours for the four o'clock show in the pouring rain, and so a lot of my memories are just inching closer and closer to the theater in the pouring rain and waiting for that exciting moment to get to the display case where the movie stills were and the poster. And so you could Google that for a a little while, you know, for for the next hour before you, before you got into the theater. And then of course, which I I think, you know, is something that we can all relate to. There was those years in your teenage uh, life when you didn't know if you were going to get in to see a certain film, when you could get ejected by the doorman or the ticket taker Mm -hmm. for being underage. And that happened to me in, in several occasions. I remember getting the cross-examined in the middle, in the middle of Fish Call Wanda by a, an Osherette who shined a torch at me and figured I wasn't the required age for that film. And I debated very strenuously with her and she let me, uh, she let me stay. So yeah, I suppose what I'm saying, Bill, is that it, it's the experiences around the movies themselves that I think are more meaningful to me than the films themselves.
0: Well, and I think, I think that actually applies to a, a lot of a lot I of us, that yeah. I've asked that I've asked that right. because I saw a, a Napoleon, for instance, uh, when it was released. Um, not the m- most recent big Kevin Brownlow restoration, but back in the uh, I guess it was the '80s, the mm-hmm. Coppola produced restoration. The Coppola saw that, but that's not one of my most memorable experiences because it was. I mean, yeah, the, it was cool seeing it, yeah. but there wasn't anything big happening around around it, giving it context. One of my most memorable experiences was seeing how the West was won in full Cinerama. Now there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the film, but seeing it in that format yeah. in, the, in the Cinerama dome, that was a big yeah. part of it. So yeah. yeah, that kind of thing.
2: I did see a racer head at a midnight at the Coolidge corner theater where I was the only one in the theater. And somebody once wrote that the ideal way to see the racer was in an empty theater. And, by god were they right that was a great great experience the less people are in a the movie theater for me the better i'm not hmm. one for the big crowds i don't need 200 people laughing to tell me to laugh <laughs> well yeah but
1: i'll tell you i've <laughs> seen i've seen so many so many like especially silent comedies i've watched them on tv and like they just fall flat and i'm like what, yeah you know, why is this so you know such yeah. a big film and then I'll see the same thing at one of the Cinecon or something with a theater full of people. Yeah. And it just goes over great. Right.
2: Oh, and that reminds me, Bill, here's a good answer. It was seeing Laurel and Hardy's Big Business and Buster Keaton's, I imagine it was one week, and something else. At the Coolidge Corner Theater here in Boston, well, really in Brookline, on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, to a fairly well-attended room where the pianist never turned up. So, you know, they said, look, I'm sorry, guys, but we have no music. So if you want your tickets reimbursed, we'll reimburse them. We're just going to run the films. And it was awkward at first. I can just remember I'm hearing everybody move in their seats and cough and wheeze. And then all of a sudden the laughter starts. Oh, yeah. And that laughter was the soundtrack. And that was a lovely experience. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a good one.
2: Yeah, that's one for the record.
0: Yeah. Well, Peter, it has been great talking to you, getting acquainted here, uh, and really looking forward to seeing the full, full version of uh, Film is Dead, Long Live Film. Thank you. So thank you for joining us on Movie Nights and Matinees.
2: It was a pleasure. Please invite me back. Even if I just kind of sit in and not say a word, this was really fun. So it's always, it's always nice to talk about film and to listen to other people talk about film. So I agree. I'll I'll welcome that opportunity. Thanks, Peter. And always happy to see Jim.
0: If you found our chat with Peter interesting, you definitely will want to seek out his documentary, The Dying of the Light. It really is a fascinating look at an era of showmanship that kind of slipped away without most moviegoers realizing it at the time. On the Screening Room page of the Movie Nights and Matinees website, you'll find an Amazon link for the film, which, though out of print, may provide you with an opportunity to pick up a previously owned copy. If you want to get better acquainted with Peter's work, visit the Featured Guests page and scroll down to his photo there. Clicking on it will take you to his website. As always, if you haven't already done so, please click on the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen, and submit a rating and review where possible. Also, please share the podcast far and wide, and be sure to visit the Movie Nights and Matinees Facebook page, where you can often find some supplementary photos tied to the episodes, and of course, any comments or questions you might care to leave are most welcome. Be sure to make episode 23 a part of your holiday season a couple of weeks from now. I'll see if I can't come up with something... Appropriate. You know, that just might work.